Book Two, Chapter Seventeen of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen. However, if I were to indulge my own inclinations in expatiating on this subject, I should go on forever. Let us therefore pass to the next question and consider whether rhetoric is an art. No one of those who have laid down rules for oratory has ever doubted that it is an art. It is clear, even from the titles of their books, that their theme is the art of rhetoric, while Cicero defines rhetoric as artistic eloquence. And it is not merely the orators who have claimed this distinction for their studies, with a view to giving them an additional title to respect but the stoic and peripatetic philosophers, for the most part, agree with them. Indeed, I will confess that I had doubts as to whether I should discuss this portion of my inquiry, for there is no one, I will not say so unlearned, but so devoid of ordinary sense, as to hold that building, weaving, or molding vessels from clay are arts, and at the same time to consider that rhetoric, which, as I have already said, is the noblest and most sublime of tastes, has reached such a lofty eminence without the assistance of art. For my own part, I think that those who have argued against this view did not realize what they were saying, but merely desired to exercise their wits by the selection of a difficult theme, like Polycrates, when he praised Busiris and Clytemnestra, I may add that he is credited with a not dissimilar performance, namely the composition of a speech which was delivered against Socrates. Some would have it that rhetoric is a natural gift, though they admit that it can be developed by practice. So Antonius, in the De Oratore of Cicero, styles it a knack derived from experience, but denies that it is an art. This statement is, however, not intended to be accepted by us as the actual truth, but is inserted to make Antonius speak in character, since he was in the habit of concealing his art. Still Lysias is said to have maintained the same view, which is defended on the ground that uneducated persons, barbarians and slaves, when speaking on their own behalf, say something that resembles an exordium, state the facts of the case, prove, refute, and plead for mercy, just as an orator does in his peroration. To this is added the quibble that nothing that is based on art can have existed before the art in question, whereas men have always, from time immemorial, spoken in their own defense or in denunciation of others. The teaching of rhetoric as an art was, they say, a later invention, dating from about the time of Tisias and Corax. Oratory, therefore, existed before art, and consequently cannot be an art. For my part, I am not concerned with the date when oratory began to be taught. Even in Homer we find Phoenix as an instructor, not only of conduct, but of speaking, while a number of orators are mentioned, the various styles are represented by the speeches of three of the chiefs, 
and the young men are set to contend among themselves in contests of eloquence. Moreover, lawsuits and pleaders are represented in the engravings on the shield of Achilles. It is sufficient to call attention to the fact that everything which art has brought to perfection originated in nature. Otherwise, we might deny the title of art to medicine, which was discovered from the observation of sickness and health, and according to some is entirely based upon experiment. Wounds were bound up long before medicine developed into an art, and fevers were reduced by rest and abstention from food, long before the reason for such treatment was known, simply because the state of the patient's health left no choice. So, too, building should not be styled an art, for primitive man built himself a hut without the assistance of art. Music, by the same reasoning, is not an art, for every race indulges in some kind of singing and dancing. If, therefore, any kind of speech is to be called eloquence, I will admit that it existed before it was an art. If, on the other hand, not every man that speaks is an orator, and primitive men did not speak like an orator, my opponents must needs acknowledge that oratory is the product of art and did not exist before it. This conclusion also rules out their argument that men speak who have never learned how to speak, and that which a man does untaught can have no connection with art. In support of this contention, they adduce the fact that Demades was a waterman and Aeschines an actor, but both were orators. The reasoning is false, for no man can be an orator untaught, and it would be truer to say that these orators learned oratory late in life than that they never learned at all, although, as a matter of fact, Aeschines had an acquaintance with literature from childhood, since his father was a teacher of literature, while, as regards Demades, it is quite uncertain that he never studied rhetoric, and, in any case, continuous practice in speaking was sufficient to bring him to such proficiency as he attained, for experience is the best of all schools. On the other hand, it may fairly be asserted that he would have achieved greater distinction if he had received instruction, for although he delivered his speeches with great effect, he never ventured to write them for others. Aristotle, it is true, in his Grillus, produces some tentative arguments to the contrary, which are marked by characteristic ingenuity. On the other hand, he also wrote three books on the art of rhetoric, in the first of which he not merely admits that rhetoric is an art, but treats it as a department of politics and also of logic. Critolaus and Athenodorus of Rhodes have produced many arguments against this view, while Agnon renders himself suspect by the very title of his book in which he proclaims that he is going to indict rhetoric. As to the statements of Epicurus on this subject, they cause me no surprise, for he is the foe of all systematic training. These gentlemen talk a great deal, but the arguments on which they base their statements are few. I will therefore select the most important of them, and will deal with them briefly, to prevent the discussion lasting to all eternity. Their first contention is based on the subject matter, 
for they assert that all arts have their own subject matter, which is true, and go on to say that rhetoric has none, which I shall show in what follows to be false. Another slander is to the effect that no art will acquiesce in false opinions, since an art must be based on direct perception, which is always true. Now, say they, rhetoric thus give its assent to false conclusions, and is therefore not an art. I will admit that rhetoric sometimes substitutes falsehood for truth, but I will not allow that it does so because its opinions are false, since there is all the difference between holding a certain opinion oneself and persuading someone else to adopt an opinion. For instance, a general frequently makes use of falsehood. Hannibal, when hemmed in by Fabius, persuaded his enemy that he was in retreat by tying brushwood to the horns of oxen, setting fire to them by night, and driving the herds across the mountains opposite. But though he deceived Fabius, he himself was fully aware of the truth. Again, when the Spartan Theopompus changed clothes with his wife, and escaped from custody disguised as a woman, he deceived his guards, but was not for a moment deceived as to his own identity. Similarly, an orator, when he substitutes falsehood for the truth, is aware of the falsehood, and of the fact that he is substituting it for the truth. He, therefore, deceives others, but not himself. When Cicero boasted that he had thrown dust in the eyes of the jury in the case of Cluentius, he was far from being blinded himself. And when a painter, by his artistic skill, makes us believe that certain objects project from the picture, while others are withdrawn into the background, he knows perfectly well that they are all in the same plane. My opponents further assert that every art has some definite goal towards which it directs its efforts, but that rhetoric as a rule has no such goal, while at other times it professes to have an aim, but fails to perform its promise. They lie. I have already shown that rhetoric has a definite purpose, and have explained what it is, and, what is more, the orator will always make good his professions in this respect, for he will always speak well. On the other hand, this criticism may perhaps hold good as against those who think persuasion the end of oratory. But our orator and his art, as we define it, are independent of results. The speaker aims at victory, it is true, but if he speaks well, he has lived up to the ideals of his art, even if he is defeated. Similarly, a pilot will desire to bring his ship safe to harbor, but if he is swept out of his course by a storm, he will not for that reason cease to be a pilot, but will say in the well-known words of the old poet, Still let me steer straight on. So too the doctor seeks to heal the sick, but if the violence of the disease or the refusal of the patient to obey his regimen or any other circumstance prevent his achieving his purpose, he will not have fallen short of the ideals of his art, provided he has done everything according to reason. So, too, the orator's purpose is fulfilled if he has spoken well. For the art of rhetoric, as I shall show later, 
is realized in action, not in the result obtained. From this it follows that there is no truth in yet another argument, which contends that arts know when they have attained their end, whereas rhetoric does not. For every speaker is aware when he is speaking well. These critics also charge rhetoric with doing what no art does, namely making use of vices to serve its ends, since it speaks the thing that is not and excites the passions. But there is no disgrace in doing either of these things, as long as the motive be good. Consequently, there is nothing vicious in such action. Even a philosopher is, at times, permitted to tell a lie, while the orator must needs excite the passions, if that be the only way by which he can lead the judge to do justice. For judges are not always enlightened, and often have to be tricked to prevent them falling into error. Give me philosophers as judges, pack senates and assemblies with philosophers, and you will destroy the power of hatred, influence, prejudice, and false witness. Consequently, there will be very little scope for eloquence whose value will lie almost entirely in its power to charm. But if, as is the case, our hearers are fickle of mind, and truth is exposed to a host of perils, we must call in art to aid us in the fight and employ such means as will hope our cause. He who has been driven from the right road cannot be brought back to it save by a fresh detour. The point, however, that gives rise to the greatest number of these captious accusations against rhetoric is found in the allegation that orators speak indifferently on either side of a case, from which they draw the following arguments. No art is self-contradictory, but rhetoric does contradict itself. No art tries to demolish what itself has built but this does happen in the operations of rhetoric. Or again, rhetoric teaches either what ought to be said or what ought not to be said. Consequently, it is not an art, because it teaches what ought not to be said, or because, while it teaches what ought to be said, it also teaches precisely the opposite. Now, it is obvious that all such charges are brought against that type of rhetoric with which neither good men nor virtue herself will have anything to do, since if a case be based on injustice, rhetoric has no place therein, and consequently it can scarcely happen, even under the most exceptional circumstances, that an orator, that is to say, a good man, will speak indifferently on either side. Still, it is in the nature of things conceivable that just causes may lead two wise men to take different sides, since it is held that wise men may fight among themselves, provided that they do so at the bidding of reason. I will therefore reply to their criticisms in such a way that it will be clear that these arguments have no force even against those who concede the name of orator to persons of bad character. For rhetoric is not self-contradictory. The conflict is between case and case, not between rhetoric and itself. 
and even if persons who have learned the same thing fight one another, that does not prove that what they have learned is not an art. Were that so, there could be no art of arms, since gladiators trained under the same master are often matched against each other. Nor would the pilot's art exist, because in sea-fights pilots may be found on different sides. Nor yet could there be an art of generalship, since general is pitted against general. In the same way, rhetoric does not undo its own work. For the orator does not refute his own arguments, nor does rhetoric even do so, because those who regard persuasion as its end, or the two good men whom chance has matched against one another, seek merely for probabilities, and the fact that one thing is more credible than another does not involve contradiction between the two. There is no absolute antagonism between the probable and the more probable, just as there is none between that which is white and that which is whiter, or between that which is sweet and that which is sweeter. Nor does rhetoric ever teach that which ought not to be said, or that which is contrary to what ought to be said, but solely what ought to be said in each individual case. But though the orator will as a rule maintain what is true, this will not always be the case. There are occasions when the public interest demands that he should defend what is untrue. The following objections are also put forward in the second book of Cicero's De Oratori. Art deals with things that are known, but the pleading of an orator is based entirely on opinion, not on knowledge, because he speaks to an audience who do not know, and sometimes himself states things of which he has no actual knowledge. Now, one of these points, namely, whether the judges have knowledge of what is being said to them, has nothing to do with the art of oratory. The other statement, that art is concerned with things that are known, does, however, require an answer. Rhetoric is the art of speaking well, and the orator knows how to speak well. But, it is urged, he does not know whether what he says is true. Neither do they who assert that all things derive their origin from fire or water or the four elements or indivisible atoms, nor they who calculate the distances of the stars or the size of the earth and sun. And yet all these call the subject which they teach an art. But if reason makes them seem not merely to hold opinions, but, thanks to the cogency of the proofs adduced, to have actual knowledge, Reason will do the same service to the orator. But, they say, he does not know whether the cause which he has undertaken is true. But not even a doctor can tell whether a patient who claims to be suffering from a headache really is so suffering. But he will treat him on the assumption that his statement is true, and medicine will still be an art. Again, what of the fact that rhetoric does not always aim at telling the truth, but always at stating what is probable? The answer is that the orator knows that what he states is no more than probable. My opponents further object that advocates often defend in one case what they have attacked in another. This is not the fault of the art 
but of the man. Such are the main points that are urged against rhetoric. There are others as well, but they are of minor importance and drawn from the same sources. That rhetoric is an art may, however, be proved in a very few words. For if Cleanthes' definition be accepted that art is a power reaching its ends by a definite path, that is, by ordered methods, no one can doubt that there is such method and order in good speaking. While if, on the other hand, we accept the definition which meets with almost universal approval, that art consists in perceptions agreeing and cooperating to the achievement of some useful end, we shall be able to show that rhetoric lacks none of these characteristics. Again, it is scarcely necessary for me to point out that like other arts it is based on examination and practice. And if logic is an art, as is generally agreed, rhetoric must also be an art, since it differs from logic in species rather than in genus. Nor must I omit to point out that where it is possible in any given subject for one man to act without art and another with art, there must necessarily be an art in connection with that subject, as there must also be in any subject in which the man who has received instruction is the superior of him who has not. But, as regards the practice of rhetoric, it is not merely the case that the trained speaker will get the better of the untrained, for even the trained man will prove inferior to one who received a better training. If this were not so, there would not be so many rhetorical rules, nor would so many great men have come forward to teach them. The truth of this must be acknowledged by everyone, but more especially by us, since we concede the possession of oratory to none save the good man. End of Book 2, Chapter 17